It's Monday, August 17th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gentlemen. Hey, good weekend. Great weekend, yeah. Yeah, good you both weekends. watched the golf, didn't you? I went to Outer Banks for a couple days. Oh, did you? Yeah. Did you? Wow, nice. man, Lucky I love the Outer Banks. After Such Friday. A... And was it a shark-free weekend for you? <laughs> yeah, not a single dorsal fin to speak of. Fantastic. Uh, we are going to dip into the full mailbag. We are going to talk about the news that Bob Iger shared over the weekend. Um, but let's start with. The business story of the day, certainly the business story of Sunday, and that is the New York Times article entitled Inside Amazon Wrestling Big Ideas in a Bruising Workplace. And if you've read the article, then you, <laughs> you already know. Um, if you haven't read the article, uh, Jason, it does paint a picture of a very tough workplace. Not j- and, and let's be clear, this is not the warehouses. This is not people who are are so-called blue-collar workers. This is about what it's like to be a white-collar executive at Amazon. And I'll save my own thoughts for a moment. But I'm curious, what was your reaction when you read the article? Yeah, you know, it was it was interesting to read because when I when I first read it, when I first saw it, I noted that one of the co-authors. Uh, David Streitfeld. He's a gentleman I speak with a good bit, quarter in and quarter out, in regard to Amazon's earnings, um, and we've we've had some great discussions. I think it's safe to say he's historically fallen a bit more sort of on the skeptical side of Amazon, at least as an investment, um, and I think that's primarily sort of because you know they don't play to that Wall Street sort of earnings per share game and whatnot. But overall, I mean, he's he's also very aware of of the power of that business and in its reach and what they've been able to do to date. Um, so, you know, when I when I when I read the article and in knowing what I know about him, I don't think this was a piece that was aimed to target Amazon or, you know, maybe a hatchet job as some might like to say. And and by the same token, what I also saw um, yesterday was a a very extensive post on LinkedIn from an Amazon employee. His name is Nick, and forgive me, Nick, if I pronounce your last name incorrectly, Chubitaryu. And um, he works there at Amazon. He's been there for a couple of years. And he countered a lot of what um, the authors said in the article. And the, and they interviewed, It was there were two uh, authors on the article, they interviewed uh, over a hundred I believe former employees at Amazon. Right. They tried to get an interview with Jeff Bezos, the CEO and founder. Not surprisingly, no. Bezos that was declined. But they did speak to a couple of executives. But uh, sure, cer- certainly from the former employees, it paints a picture of a very taxing place to work. Reports of people crying at their desks and <laughs> so, you know that yeah. sort of thing. And so I would say this. So number one, I'm quite certain it's not easy to work at Amazon. I mean, I think if it was, then probably everybody would be doing it. And this is a company that is going far beyond just the bounds of e-commerce. They they're doing a lot of different things. And and we we it's no secret that Jeff Bezos is a very aspirational, uh, goal oriented, super long term thinking kind of guy. And and so I I, I Accept the fact. I'm sure it is difficult to work there. Um, I'm sure the standards are held high. By the same token, I do think there are two sides to every story, and I think it's I think it's worth reading that LinkedIn post. I tweeted mm-hmm. it out over the weekend. Um, it's worth reading at least to get sort of a counter 
to the article that was published in the Times. And you know, so the one the one sign that kind of makes me think, hmm, is what you just referred to when in in the story they said, "I quote, nearly every person I worked with, I saw cry at their desk." Now, to me, that sounds like a bit of hyperbole. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I've never worked in a place where I saw people cry at their desk. And and I spent a year at Travelers Insurance and Auto Claims, Chris. If there is a job that'll make you want to cry, punch, scream, whatever, that's it right there. And I never saw anybody cry. And that was the most micromanaged environment I've ever worked in, ever in my entire life. Uh, so, I, I think it's very easy for former employees to go on a rampage and focus on only the negative. Especially if they're not there anymore. Um, again, I don't think Amazon's a very easy place to work. I'm sure it's not. They've they've set big goals. But by the same token, I think you have to sort of take this with a grain of salt. Understand there are two sides to every story. And I will say too, I saw an interview this morning that David did on, I believe it was a San Francisco news station, and and he the tone that he took was very much sort of that same same notion. There is is that. He didn't necessarily see like maybe they were doing anything wrong. He thinks it's it's a challenging competitive culture, um, but he wasn't necessarily disputing it in in that interview as well. So, you know, I think everybody sort of reads it and interprets it in their own way. Um, but I don't think this is some just place where you're going to go in and, and it's going to be just all you know sunshine and lollipops every day either. Well, and Taylor, we got some email about this from listeners, and mm-hmm. and certainly there you know if you spend any time on Facebook over the weekend, there were people posting it, that sort of thing. And I think for people who uh, whose only interaction with Amazon is as a customer, if this is the first you're even thinking about, well, what is life like in the office building? Again, not in the warehouse. What is life like in the office building? If this is the first time you've encountered that, then I could see where this would be kind of shocking. Yeah, totally. Um, but like Jason said, it's past employees. And granted, you're probably not going to have too many current employees wanting to come out and speak negatively about their <laughs> employer unless it's on an anonymous basis. But um, I feel like Amazon's gotten over some of these labor disputes in the past. Granted, like you mentioned at the top of the show, they were in the warehouse for the most part. And this is finally striking home at their headquarters. Um, I don't think it's going to have too much of an impact from a customer perspective. I think that I was. This weekend or last weekend, I think I even said that Prime is my favorite thing in the history of the world. Whether or not I was exaggerating or not, I still had that thought for a split second because I do use it a lot, and I think a lot of other people do too. Um, and whether or not some some executives that probably made a decent amount of money working for Amazon and now aren't there anymore, and probably leverage that experience from Amazon to a better career or um, a similar career somewhere else. Um, I don't think that it's going to chase too many customers away. I just ordered dog food last night by asking my little Alexa Echo in our house to do it. I mean, it was like, "Hey, Alexa, order dog food." She's like, "Well, we have this history of dog food order in your in your queue. Is this what you want?" "Yep, okay, it's on the way." I mean, so like again, hey, man, we're not entitled to a job, right? You don't deserve a job. So if you don't like it working there, don't work there, right? But I guarantee you, there are a lot of people that do like working there, and that's what it sounded like in in both articles as well as for for all of the challenges it may offer. There are certainly people that like that type of environment where they're pushed to the max because you know developing all of this new kind of technology, taking this world forward, growing a company that's the most customer centric business on the face of the on the face of the planet, that takes hard work. So my my takeaway from this is if you're not into hard work, if you're not into being challenged, don't apply there. 
I did see one employee in the article in the Times say that it was like a drug going there to see what you could succeed at, succeed at that day or or that year. Really challenged at the goals that they were tasked with. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a Type A personality environment, I would imagine, for the most part. Um, That being said, when I first read it, I thought. Doesn't Bezos own the Washington Post? Aren't they a competitor with the New York Times? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's uh Well, and uh, I think I was saying this to you earlier this morning, Taylor. Uh, you know, I, I read it, and having um, interviewed David Faber uh, from CNBC for the radio show because he had done the primetime documentary on Amazon, I read this article and just found myself nodding a lot. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, in agreement, just sort of, because to me, it didn't really um, break a lot of new ground yeah. in, ter- in terms of former uh, employee experiences and the stories that are told about how hard it is, how challenging it is, how challenging Bezos can be to work with, how, how tough a leader he mm-hmm. is. Um, so again, it didn't really break a lot of new ground, but I, but I do I do understand why anyone reading this type of thing for the first time would go on Facebook and post, I'm canceling my Prime subscription. Or, you know, in the case of a couple of our listeners, emailing and saying, what do you guys think about this? Because as a shareholder, I find myself a little conflicted. I I, I wasn't, I can't say I was, you know, ready to throw a party after reading that (laughs) article, but by the same token, there was nothing that I read that made me think as a longtime shareholder, I want nothing to do with this business. I'm going to sell out of all the gains I've made and throw a party anyways. Yeah, I'd say as a longtime shareholder, as a as a loyal Prime member, I mean, that, that article, number one, kind of to your point, I was kind of thinking, yeah, I've kind of heard this stuff before. It wasn't terribly surprising. It, it doesn't make me want to sell my shares. It doesn't make me want to use Amazon any less. And, and honestly, I would encourage people who are who are having a knee-jerk reaction to something like, like this, go read that LinkedIn post by Nick. Uh, Chupatario, who who basically now granted he he's a current employee there, so he's he's getting himself out there and saying so. You could make the argument, well, I mean, maybe he has ulterior motives and he wants to be seen in a good light with the company. Who knows? Who cares? Go read it and at least see the counter to it, because I'll tell you what that story in the Times does. It makes some it makes some general sort of broad sweeping um, sort of accusations or allegations. In in Nick's piece, I think. Uh, Brings more examples, more specific examples to the forefront uh, to at least show you, you know, the other side of that story. So I, I would encourage checking that. Yeah, right at the top, he says it's blatantly incorrect and additionally purposefully designed to make past data reflect current reality. Yeah. So he's got a point of view. Well, one more data point I'll throw out, and then we'll move on. As of the last filing, Amazon has 180,000 employees. It's a big company. I don't know how many you thought they had. That's certainly a bigger number than I expected. So I think part of the reaction is, oh my gosh, they interviewed over 100 people. Yeah. Yes. Which is a third of our company. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, radio at fool.com is our email address. A question from Vika Spore, a stock advisor member and longtime listener in Connecticut, who writes Oil prices are historically low. And I have bought some UWTI ETF. Uh, is it good to play this price-based index as oil prices will rise? Uh, this is an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, uh, specifically tailored the Velocity Shares 3x long crude oil, which a year ago was trading in the high 20s, and today is trading around a dollar. And you know a lot more about this than I do, but I look at that and I think, well, I'm pretty sure oil prices are going to rise at some point. Should I be looking at 
dip into a, an ETF like this? Well, there's there's a couple things here. I personally, I don't chase the price of a commodity, and and first and first and foremost, I would never chase it with the ETF that's three x either direction. Um, that's dangerous, which is why you've seen it drop from twenty to a dollar. And three um, x just refers to it's a leveraged fund, so you get three times the exposure to the price of the oil. If it rises by three dollars, yours goes up nine. It's it's just that they have them in both directions, right? And, and so if it drops by three dollars. Yeah, then you're kind of screwed. <laughs> then, then then you're in the negative on this on this ETF. Yeah, in if you particular. look at the five year chart, of this thing it's not very pretty. <laughs> no, so it's it's a wild ride, no doubt. But um, just in general, if you wanted to play the price of oil. Yeah, logically, you think this is a this is a low point. I, I maybe an asymmetric bet. I'm not going to go much lower, but there's a lot of upside. But the more and more I read into you know the advances that U.S. technology has made on fracking and just oil drilling in general, I'm not too sure if we have the same ceiling that we had last year or or previous years in the hundred dollars, ninety dollar, eighty dollar range even. Um, you look at some drillers talking about making profits right now at fifty dollars a barrel at some basins in the United States. Production in the Bakken is up six times uh, per well than it was in just two thousand seven. Eagle Ford's even higher, so these companies are getting better. And there's countries out there that are still waiting for that that whole the holy trinity of political money and technology to all align itself so that they can do exactly what we've been doing in the United States is we have great land rights, we have technological advancements, we have the money, we have the infrastructure. When countries like China and Argentina catch up, which I imagine they probably will one day, um, oil, I mean, yeah, you, you might not see $80 a barrel for a long time or ever if, if th- that happens quickly. So, that's why I don't play the price of commodities. I'm I'm going to buy into companies that are profiting from the the rise in oil. EOG is a good example of dropping costs in the best basins in the United States. Um, Hess said their costs are down 50% drilling wise since 2012, and see 30% more available. So companies are lowering costs, which in turns means that they can profit lower. And if oil reaches 60 or 70 dollars a barrel, there's a lot of oil that could turn on real quick and keep prices suppressed. Couple of housekeeping notes before we get to our final story. First, if you are a Zillow shareholder or Zillow is a stock on your watch list and you woke up this morning and saw the shares down 66%, Holy understandable, smokes. Jason, that you might uh, do a double take. You're and, looking for a headline there. And that, uh, and that your, your heart rate increased. Right. And as a Zillow shareholder, thankfully, I was aware that the uh, split was was coming here, and it's a split they had talked about a little while back. Three we've for seen one, a number right? of yeah, we've seen a number of companies announce this. this is essentially a power play. Uh, so you know, if you don't like it, don't own shares. If you're okay with it, that's fine. You know, you're you're in with the leadership team and sort of their long term vision. But yeah, it's a three for one split uh, where uh, you, you own a share of Zillow, then you're going to get two shares of a Class C stock. Along with your one share of of Zillow stock, and so uh, going forward, that Class C stock is going to trade under the symbol Z that, that that they are trading under or have been trading under, and then the new share that you'll get uh, will be trading under the symbol ZG. Uh, so you'll have one share of ZG and two shares of Z, and the two shares of Z will be non-voting shares. So essentially. You know, again, it's the same size pizza. You know, just cutting it up into some more slices and ultimately taking away a little bit more of your voting rights in the process. Which, as we've talked about before, you know, that's just that's just the name of the game. And if you don't like it, if you don't, don't like buy ham it. on that pizza, tough yep. tough nuts. <laughs> um, I finally went to Bojangles. 
Yes, nice. good for you. I, uh, last, so just quickly, last week, um, the Jangler. I uh, I the drove IPO down to uh, to North Carolina to pick up my daughter who was at sleepaway camp for the first time, and got the chance to drive As across. Maeve is in there pointing to her. I think yes, it's, yes. So that was, she's the one, huh? Behind the glass. Um, and uh, got the chance to drive across almost the entire state of North Carolina. It was a lovely, it's no small feat. I was, was going to say, that's a long trip. It, yeah, it was, yeah I, put, I put some miles on the car. Um, and a lovely drive both ways. And holy cow, was I struck by how many Bojangles there <laughs> are in the state of North Carolina. And I got to thinking about Peter Lynch, one of the great investors of the last 40, 50 years, and how um, he really popularized the notion of buy what you know, which I think is something that, as we've talked about before, buy what you know is is not really a starting point. Buy what you know is a good a good way to start in terms of idea generation. Mm-hmm. Look at the businesses around you and use that as a starting point and then start to investigate. Because I think I said this to you, Jason, on Friday. If I lived in North Carolina, I would absolutely look at Bojangles and and just how they are everywhere and think, well, I got to buy this. Stock. They got to be this many everywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got to buy this stock. Um, it's like when Krispy Kreme went public. I mean, everybody thought, oh, I got to buy this. Well, it didn't work out so no, well. I'm yeah. it. So again, it's a good starting point, but then you want to dig into the numbers. What's your order? I uh, so I went there for breakfast. Yes. Got a uh, biscuit with egg and sausage, and I have to say, it was quite good. It's yeah. It was delicious. It was in no way healthy for me, but holy <laughs> yeah. cow, it was delicious. Uh, on Saturday at the D23 Expo, Disney CEO Bob Iger announced that Star Wars Land theme parks will be coming to both Disneyland in California and Disney World in Florida. And uh, thanks to some informed speculation and some intel from uh, Robin Rifkin, one of our listeners in Seattle, as Tony Kornheiser would say, I believe we had that. I believe we called that. Um, Now, (laughs) no details on what the price tag is going to be on this and even what the timeline is, but I feel like they've got a few years to get this right. They do, and I saw in initial timeline, or at least a hope of somewhere towards the end of 2017, and and price tag wise, yeah, you're right. I think that'll that'll probably change as it goes along, because as as with any sort of of large uh, scale sort of contract deal, um, you know, a lot of a lot of those hidden costs pop up, and you sort of just deal with it and you move along and continue to build what your real vision is. But you know, I mean, I I can tell you, my daughters have been on us to get back to Disney World here for, you know, a couple of years now. We've, you know, been fortunate to be able to take them twice and they're 9 and 10 years old now, so they're kind of getting to that age where it may be starting to, you know, lose some of its magic. Um although I I would say it's it's I still feel the magic. I love it, and I can tell you, girls, with this news right here, we're heading back. <laughs> it might be a couple of years, but we're going back. Well, and you, you mentioned uh, the size of this. This is the largest single themed land expansion ever for the Disney Corporation. So, I mean, pretty, pretty large in its scope if you think about it. Yeah. But, but again, I. I this just seems like yeah, I'm 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 now not that I'm rooting for this, but I'm now waiting for Bob Iger to make a mistake. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering I'm wondering when is he going to come out with something, some sort of misstep, some sort of you know even as we talked about recently with Buffett and the Precision uh, cast, 
deal a week ago where there were some analysts out there who were sort of raising an eyebrow, sort of like basically saying, you know what, I don't love this. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not down on this deal, but I'm not going to stand up and give Didn't you. Have their uh, I'm not giving you a standing fanfare. O on this one. And it seems like everything Bob Iger has done over the last few years, certainly the acquisitions. I'm I'm scratching my head trying to think of a mistake that this guy has made. Or, and uh, pity the the poor person who has to be Let the next the good CEO times of roll. Walt Disney. So I think I mean when you look at the longer term sort of. Effects this will or should have on the business. I mean, their parks and resorts have grown operating profit at an annualized rate of about thirteen and a half percent over the last five years. Now, I suspect down the line, as this, uh, as these, as these uh, parks, as these additions uh, come online, that we'll see that number um, rise. Because I think this truly is. I mean, beyond just like Disney Shanghai being a wonderful way to get in touch with that side of the world, I think that. You know, these are going to be very specific to the United States, both sides of the country, and I think they they will have global uh, they will have global interest for sure. I think it will bring uh, people from all over the world, and I think that when you look at the fact that around twenty percent of Disney's total operating profit comes from the parks today, it's obviously a very significant part of of the the company's profitability. And we always talk about how you sort of have those. High fixed costs in keeping the parks open, so the more traffic they can generate, you know, the more profitable they become. So I think you see on two fronts here: this will generate more traffic, and honestly, I think it gives them, you know, more pricing power down the road as time goes on as well. So as opposed to five years ago when we saw them resorting to discounts to try to gin up traffic, I think we're going to see kind of the opposite here. I think as long as we see a, you know consumer confidence continue to improve and we see a steadily recovering economy, I think this is going to give them really a lot of leverage to not only drive traffic to those parks, but think about all of the money that comes from that and the consumer product side of things and the studio production side of things. So, I mean, you know, they were very clear. Iger was very clear on the call that this Star Wars, this very well may be the most valuable you know, film franchise of all time, and I tend to agree with them there. Um, there are a lot of different directions they can go with this, and I, he'd have to screw up something big to really, to really, I think, take away the enthusiasm or the long-term, um, you know, opportunity that, that that Disney stands to benefit from. I, I agree with that. Although the one thing that is. I don't want to say this is out of his control because it's not, but I would say that the 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 one thing that is the most out of his control is the films themselves. Yes. And if this next set of films ends up being more like say The Phantom Menace than any you know <laughs> any of the first trilogy, then I think they've got a problem on their hands. It doesn't mean they halt production, it doesn't mean they do any of that, but I think that this first film needs to be not just a, a box office hit, which it almost certainly will be, but it needs to be a critical hit as well. Otherwise, the pressure really gets ramped up on the next couple of films. Yeah, they need to create that new fan base on a recurring basis. How long ago was I don't remember how long ago it was since Phantom Menace. Um, maybe a decade. It's been, I don't think it's been that long, has no. it? Uh, maybe f- five-ish years since five-ish the last years, one, yeah. I guess. I'm just taking a guess there. Yeah, I think it was. uh, No, I think I think by the time this comes out, it'll be will be will be close to a decade since the last one. Yeah. So, thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll be right back.